Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time on the show, the art of negotiation, why it matters and how to do it well. Agility is really the skill of the negotiator, not turning into something that you are not and trying to be a man because, you know, we're women, we're not. Coming up on The Broad Experience. A couple of months ago, during those shows I did on pay, I asked you if you'd like me to do a show on negotiation. A lot of you said yes. So here it is. Actually, there's so much to say about this that, again, I'm dividing the topic into two shows, each with a different guest. As a business journalist, I've done a lot of reporting on women and salary negotiation over the last 10 years or so. It's always fascinated me, probably partly because I've never considered myself to be a great negotiator. Past studies have shown that women negotiate less than men, that young men right out of college are likelier than women to negotiate that first job offer, meaning their salaries get a bump right out of the gate. There's also evidence that women who negotiate hard, they get backlash for it, that they're perceived as just not very nice, and that hurts them in the negotiation. All this sounds so negative, but there's plenty of other evidence to show women are not worse negotiators than men, especially when they negotiate on behalf of someone else. We just tend to find negotiating for ourselves awkward and unpleasant. And maybe it'll always be a bit awkward, but that doesn't mean it can't work in our favour. Today's guest is Natalie Reynolds. She's the founder and CEO of Advantage Spring. They're based in England, but they train teams and individuals all over the world to be better negotiators. And she's the author of a book called We Have a Deal – how to Negotiate with Intelligence, Flexibility, and Power. Natalie trained as a lawyer, but she ended up having a career in public service in the UK. And her roles always involved a lot of negotiation. But she found public service to be really ageist. She was told she'd be brilliant for a job, but was too young to be considered. So she left and joined a big negotiation training firm. But very quickly became disillusioned there because they did teach the ball breaker style of negotiation. It was very uh, kind of two-dimensional, very scripted. They treated every client the same and people are not the same, companies are not the same. So I tried to kind of own my role a little bit by looking at things like gender and negotiation and biases at the negotiation table. However, um, despite this being very popular with clients, when I came back from maternity leave, they sold me... As a business, we don't want to be seen to be doing the woman thing. So we want you to stop talking about gender and diversity. So I basically quit, started Advantage Spring, where we train men and women in equal measure. But I am able to still do the woman thing and talk about gender and negotiation and the very human part of negotiation, which is incredibly important. Now, you've heard me say this on past shows. I believe in negotiating. 
it gets you more of what you want. But as I told Natalie, since Sheryl Sandberg published Lean In, and that book advises women to negotiate for more pay, I've detected quite a bit of backlash to the whole idea. And what I've heard from listeners in Facebook forums is, well, why should I negotiate? Because women are punished for negotiating. Or more, actually, more strongly, what I hear is, if I negotiate, like, essentially, I'm having to become more like a man. I'm having to change myself to become more like a man. And why should I do that? And I want to, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll help me convince people that negotiation is a really useful human skill that we should all hone. I know I I could do with honing my skills for sure. There are so many things you've just said which are relevant to, to, to all of this. So the first thing is you mentioned something that I refer to as social penalty, that women receive more of a backlash when they negotiate. Unfortunately, there is a lot of evidence that shows that when women negotiate, they are penalised for it. However, my view is then to give advice to women, which is don't stop negotiating because of this. Do not stop. You know, um, the best thing you can do is learn how to negotiate as effectively as possible. That's what's going to help you. The world is built around being able to negotiate. It's one of the oldest, most important and precious human skills there is. I say to people, negotiation is the most important skill to get what you want, need or deserve. And you cannot rely on people to always have your best interests at heart. Even people around you might not point out to you oh you could have gotten more you might have been able to do this so it's really important that you take ownership of your ability to negotiate and you do it cleverly and with agility and agility is so important when it comes to negotiation when, when you say agility what do you mean so you mentioned that many women feel like they have to become like a man to be effective when they negotiate and I am always giving people advice please do not think of it like that the best negotiators are like gymnasts They are agile, they are flexible, they can recognise the different situation they are in and move between it flexibly. Some negotiations do require us to be tough, to be firm, to stand our ground. Others require us to sit back, to listen, to build relationships, to try and understand each other. Negotiations will look very different. Uh, For example, a negotiation could be you and me sat having a coffee after this recording downstairs trying to negotiate when it might go live you know it could be as simple as that it could be negotiating at home for who does what in terms of housework it could be negotiating a major supply agreement or of course your salary and all of those things are different all of those things will feel different and they will all require different planning different preparation and different execution so agility is really the skill of the negotiator not turning into something that you are not and trying to be a man because you know we're women, we're not. Yeah. So let's work, play to our strengths. That's what the best negotiators do. Natalie says she wants to demystify negotiation. It frustrates her that it's come to be associated with aggression. That to be a good negotiator, you've got to be a ball breaker. Now, excuse my language, but that's what's out there. You're, you know, I've got to be a ball breaker. I've got to be aggressive. You know, he or she who shouts the loudest and bangs their fist the hardest will get what they want. It's simply not true. And actually, a large part of what my company does and what I do on an individual basis is challenge that perception. And when we're teaching both corporations and individuals how to negotiate, we show them the error of this approach. You can get what you want in a more sophisticated way. You don't have 
have to be aggressive or behave like we believe a man should in order to negotiate effectively. There is another way and a way that can garner less backlash. And that's what we do a lot when we coach women, get them to see what that other way is and how, you know what, it might be difficult at first, but there are coping strategies you can adopt, there are methodologies you can implement, and you can get what you want. She says getting what you want isn't about you getting one over on the other person. It's just like in any relationship. Part of it is about looking at things from the other person's point of view. Women are good at seeing the world through the other person's eyes. That's not to say we are all naturally good at it. I think it's something that everyone needs to work at. But, you know, even even the other evening, I was speaking at an event and I gave the audience a, a mixed room of men and women. I gave them the advice, when you're planning for a negotiation, sit there and plan from your perspective what matters, what you want to achieve, then physically get up. Go to the other side of the table, look back at where you were sitting and be them for a moment. Who are they? What do they want? Why do they want it? How does the world now look to them? Because the more you can help them feel like they're winning, the more effective you're going to be. But then ego kicks in. This is true for men and women. There is this view that women are more collaborative. My view is that men and women are both naturally competitive and biologically that's, that's just how humans have evolved. And interestingly, um, we will always try and win if we can. Um, and it's about using that and understanding that, that if you want to win, well, they probably want to win too. So the best negotiators put their ego to one side and think, what's going to make them feel happy? What's going to make them feel like they've gotten what they needed? And how can I engineer this negotiation so that I get what I want? But you know what? They get what they want too. Or they at least get something they can go back to their people with and say, well, guess what? I managed to get this. It's all about process. It's all about planning. But if you can help them feel like they've won, you're going to get a far better result in the long run. You'll hear Natalie mention planning again and again. She cannot emphasise this enough. To get a result you're happy with in any negotiation, you must do your research ahead of time. With a salary negotiation, you need to know what others in similar roles are getting paid. You need to take stock of your own achievements so you can talk them up. In short, you have to know your market value. And this is another thing I wanted to discuss with her. The fact that a lot of women find talking about their worth and their achievements really uncomfortable. I certainly have. We're often nervous as well because a lot is riding on this. The whole process just doesn't feel like us. But Natalie says that's no excuse to duck out. You say in the book, look, just get comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. I think that's really worth talking about. A lot of people strive to feel comfortable when they negotiate, but I, I would never advocate that. An element of, of nerves is useful. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you focused. It keeps you wondering what's coming next. And so I will spend a lot of time with male and female clients, getting them to understand why they feel like they do and getting them to own that feeling. I talk about the little voice in the head a lot at the start of the book um, and this idea that we, we become overwhelmed by our feelings of discomfort and, oh, I just want to get out of there. Um, but actually, if you can listen to, where's this discomfort coming from? What am I afraid of? If you can actually kind of embrace that discomfort and, and channel it in a different way, you then stay sharp and focused and aware. But because you've prepared properly, you're also then ready to deal with that. You should never want to be so laid back you don't worry about these things. You know, I think nerves and anxiety exist for a reason. And if you can harness them properly, they will work to your advantage. Yeah, and also you say with this discomfort thing, not only we shouldn't feel comfortable in a negotiation, but when it comes to this business of, 
ooh, that's not me, it's not authentic. You point out that we're all all sorts of different things and all sorts of different people at all sorts of different times. I talk about the many that you know the many Natalies that I am over the course of a day you know I'm a mum to two children I'm a boss of a, a of a team in an office I'm a friend I'm a wife you know I and I am slightly different in all of those roles at any one time you know uh, so when I was trying to persuade my son to put his sun cream on this morning because it is unusually hot here in the UK at the moment um, you know trying to reason with my son to put his sun cream on I was quite different to probably how I'll be later on when I'm negotiating on behalf of an energy client for a supply agreement that's cost, you know, costing them billions. You know, I will behave differently. I never stop being Natalie. I just turn on a slightly different version of her. You know, in the same way that my husband is often really surprised by how I am in a corporate environment. So I don't like him coming to see me speak. I can't stand it because I feel like I'm less able to play Natalie on a stage because he's used to seeing Natalie at home and they're the same they're still Natalie but they're just slightly different versions of Natalie there's nothing not authentic about that you know we don't go through life robotically behaving the same to everyone at every single moment so how can we channel that when we negotiate you know how did you persuade him to put his sun cream on my well my mum arrived and he does whatever my mum wants so that's how (laughs) so and there's another lesson sometimes you have to bring other people to the negotiation table to help you out which I bet we'd all love to do that during a salary negotiation but that's that that's the thing is we're on our own in a salary negotiation I want to go back to the the voice in our head because this is a huge thing with women and you'll so many women will talk about this you've got this voice saying I'm not worth that who do you think you are asking for that oh you better scale that back and it's and it's a it's how do we what do you tell people about that because I think feeling like we do not have value whether it's monetary value or simply value as a person this goes really really deep inside women first of all I would say to listeners please don't think men don't suffer from it you know men and women both suffer from the little voice in the head it's just some of us are better at controlling it than others and women do seem to struggle with it particularly around the self-worth and how we value ourselves Um, and I'll talk to you about some advice that I specifically give in relation to that in a moment but the little voice in the head is an interesting one because so many of us think oh right don't listen to it it's telling us negative things don't listen to it problem with that approach is is if you just ignore it in the run-up to the negotiation that little voice will rear its head right when you least need it to right at crunch time when you need to ask for what you want and this is the problem that you can ignore it and ignore it and pretend it's not there then you sit down you open your mouth to give your number to your boss and then it kicks in and then the little voice says you're not worth that they're gonna think you're greedy don't be ridiculous say this instead and so you do you say a lower number or you say very little and just let them take the lead Instead, I advocate a completely different approach, which kind of seems counterintuitive, but to me makes perfect sense, which is that little voice actually represents our innermost fears, inhibitions and anxieties, and also weaknesses in our position or argument. So actually what we should be doing is long before we get to that negotiation table, whether that negotiation table is an actual table or a conversation, you know, however it looks, take a moment few weeks beforehand to step back and think how am I feeling about this what what am I dreading them saying to me when I ask for this what do I think the weaknesses are in my case what do I think they're going to point out is a reason why I don't deserve this salary and you should start then almost at 
accessing that little voice in your head in advance of the negotiation because actually what the little voice is doing it's a it's actually a safety mechanism it's it's actually if you access it soon enough it's actually pointing out the weaknesses in your position the likely things they might say or the things that you're afraid of so if you actually access that voice before the negotiation table what you can then do is start to mitigate against what it's saying so if it's saying to you well you can't prove you're worth this well, what you should then do is go away and, and establish and build up a business case that says why you are worth this. If it says, well, you can't prove other people are being paid this, well, do you know what? At that point, go away and establish what other people are being paid. If it says, you know, well, well what are you going to do if they say no? Guess what? Go away and start to plan your responses if they say no. So maybe they say, no, we don't think you're worth this. You then say, OK, so what do I need to do within a three-month period to be able to access that level of salary? You know, So actually, if you can own that voice in advance, it actually helps you be more robust once you get to the negotiation table. And speaking of rejection, a lot of us, when we hear no, we immediately pull back. We accept their offer, lamenting that our attempt at negotiation failed – we take that no as final, but Natalie says that is a mistake. How to deal with the no is so important. And actually, um, I talk about perseverance as being one of the most important skills of a negotiator, particularly in relation to salary negotiations, by the way, which is why at the end of every talk I do, I'll say, look, you know, how you respond to a no defines you as a negotiator. Most of us hear a no and we go, oh, right, sorry, okay, what were you thinking then? Or we just completely concede. What we should be doing when we hit Renault is thinking, right, now I'm negotiating. Now we're actually exploring what could be possible. Now they've told me they can't accept that, so what will they accept? And so uh, the best negotiators here are no, and they view it as an invitation to keep going. So the advice I always give people is, is, is of course, when life shuts a door, open it again. It's a door, that's how they work. And the point is, is that in negotiation, people will shut doors on you. They'll tell you they can't agree to something. They'll tell you you're not worth that. And they're doing it because they're also trying to get the best deal they can for themselves or their boss. And if you can remind yourself of that and then go back and try and open the door again, that is what makes you a brilliant negotiator. And opening that door might mean taking someone else with you. It might mean pushing a bit harder on that door. It might mean pushing a little bit more gently on that door. But it's about having the resilience and being able to persevere to go back to a no and keep going. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So perseverance is important in a negotiation, and part of that is not dropping down too much from the amount you're going for. In her book, Natalie gives an example that reminded me a lot of me as a past negotiator. I would bottle at the first sign of a challenge. The example here is about the price of a shirt. So I have a shirt I want to sell, and I want £20 for it. A friend spots it and says, God, I really like that shirt. 
I'll give you six pounds for it. I immediately think, ooh, maybe 20 was too much to ask. And I go, okay, how about 14? So right there, just because the other person surprised me with a low offer, I have dropped way below the number I was aiming for. And my chances of getting close to that £20 are now slim. So this goes to the probably my most favourite aspect of negotiation, which is anchoring. I wasn't that familiar with the term anchoring. It's basically when you glom onto that first bit of information you get and base subsequent decisions around it. Just like in the shirt example, that first mention of £6 torpedoed my idea about getting 20 Natalie says too many courses teach that we should let the other party make the first move in a negotiation. I always thought that myself. So many people give people the advice, let them go first. Let them go first in the negotiation because then you can see what they might be willing to give you. And it's rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. That first number that they give you is in no way an indication of what they're ultimately willing to give you. What it is, is them giving you a number to test you to see the best they can get from you. And then because of anchoring, which is essentially the phenomenon by which we become overly influenced by the first piece of information presented to us when we make a decision, we anchor to that first proposal. And what I mean by that is we fixate on it. We think about it. We wonder why they've said that. Have I misunderstood things? Why have they gone so low? Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. And we doubt ourselves. And then we readjust our opening position to more closely match theirs. And then we're on the back foot. She always tells her clients that the power of going first cannot be overstated. Saying that, saying that, you don't always have to make sure you go first. And if you don't, it's the end of the world. So, you know, we'll get people coming to us and going, right, so in this negotiation scenario, then I must put my number out first. And I go, well, ideally, yes, if you can, if you have the confidence to be able to do that, then do that. But we don't always have the confidence. We don't always have the um, scenario that allows us to go first. The beauty of anchoring is it's actually about awareness of the phenomenon. So actually be aware that the first number put on the table can then disproportionately affect what we respond with. So the best thing you can do is, is if they go first and it's far lower than you anticipated, take a deep breath, thank them for that proposal and say thank you for that proposal. Um, However, for the following reasons, my proposal to you is this much. And now the reason that's important is because the more you can talk about what you want, the more likely you are to get it. The more you focus on what they want, the more likely you are to end up closer to their number. So re-anchoring has been proven to be just as powerful as anchoring. So in the shirt scenario, they've offered me six. I was thinking 20. The worst thing I can do is then say, oh God, okay, right, well, I'll give them 14. Yeah, 14. Instead, the best thing I can do is to hold my nerve, take a deep breath, thank them for that six pound proposal but say look it's actually a really high quality shirt and so I'm looking for 20 you know and start then bringing it back to you anchoring to what you want from your perspective and when you're when you're saying thank you very much here's why I think I would like to propose x would it be a mistake to say why I think I'm worth x in a salary negotiation no I don't think so. Um, I think if, you know, in the same way that if we were pitching for resources for a project, we would outline why we think, you know, the project is worthy of those resources. We need to get more comfortable with talking about why we are worth what we are worth. And actually, you know, myself and actually um, I have a new VP of North America starting today and she is a very big advocate of this advice. You know, 
you need to view yourself in the same way you would if you were negotiating for anyone else. So you need to drop a business case of what have you achieved? In the last six months, what have you generated? What have you delivered for the team as a whole? And you need to be able to talk about that. You shouldn't be embarrassed about talking about what you're worth. But what we, we do is we get, we get shy or we get overwhelmed or we get embarrassed or we get you know, just full of, of dread about the idea of communicating why we think we're worth what we're worth, which is why objective preparation beforehand is so powerful. Because you could even just present them with a business case. You know, and just, you know, just to back up where I'm coming from, this is a list of my achievements over the last 12 months months and hand something over to them physically these are the targets I've hit or whatever it happens to be absolutely absolutely you know we need to get more comfortable with that whole process um we need to own it you know negotiate effective negotiation is about the ownership of a conversation and you can either get in the driver's seat and steer it or you can sit in the passenger seat and try and reach the steering wheel, but you're never really going to reach it. And in the salary situation, advanced preparation, advanced outlining of your achievements or your expertise or your experience or your education is of incredible value. It really is. Uh, if you don't point out what you're worth and why, then who else is going to do it for you? So again, preparation is vital. But what if the other person is difficult, belligerent even? It can happen sometimes. Natalie says when she preps for a negotiation, she always starts by preparing for the situation she least wants. So I will often imagine going into a large corporation, sitting down and them saying, right, Natalie, before we begin, just to be clear, we don't like you. We don't like your product. We don't like your training courses and we never want to work with you again. And I think to my, I force myself to think about that, that level of hideousness. So I can then start to think, and what would I say to that? How would I deal with that? Because if you can start to think about and embrace that worst case scenario and how you would respond, anything after that starts to feel far better. The other thing I would say is that if someone is being particularly rude or aggressive to you or refusing to move or or undermining you, please remind yourself that that kind of behavior is often exhibited for a reason either because they want to make themselves feel more powerful or because they feel intimidated by you or because they actually don't have that much room for maneuver and they feel disempowered by that or there's a weakness in their position or they think you're more powerful than they are and they're trying to destabilize you by behaving in that way. You know, most of the people we negotiate with who are rude or aggressive or underminers, they don't behave like that all the time. They don't go home to their friends and families and behave like that. They're just normal people often. So you've got to ask yourself, why are they now choosing to behave like this now with me? And sometimes just reminding yourself of that can be quite empowering. And she has several tips in the book about how to deal with that kind of behaviour if it arises. But what about dealing with a more common situation where the employer makes you an offer first and it's far below your expectations? Another thing any negotiator should do before the interview is know your walkaway point i.e. the number you absolutely must get or you'll walk away from the offer. So say you're going for a job and you want £80,000, ideally, but you've decided you could walk away with 75000 no less. Only you will know this in your particular situation after you've done your research on the market and how you fit into it. But you've got your number, and then the other party offers you something that seems ridiculously low. It shocks you. And again, it can be hard not to start to move down to meet it. But, Natalie says... The best negotiators would go, OK, so before I, before I let you know what it was that I, I'm, I'm going to ask for, 
I'd be really keen to understand why this is so low. You know, actually get them to start to explain themselves. But again, all the time understanding that you still need to be able to stand your ground. Don't be swayed by what they're saying necessarily. Because if you've done your research, if you know your worth, if you feel confident, you should be understanding where you want to end up. So it's about understanding that the power of anchoring is real. It exists. It can negatively impact where you end up if you become overly swayed by it. But it's always about thinking, right, what do I want? Why do I need it? What am I going to ask for? And then actually getting that number out there. So, you know, you might say to someone, that's, you know, that's very low, you know, for the following reasons, I was going to ask for X. You know, so we do have a gap. How are we going to bridge that gap and make it a shared problem, make it a conversation rather than a kind of a battle mentality? And of course, go beyond the price. That's the other thing. You know, what else do you want from that? you know from that salary package you know what else matters to you and bring that to the table as well whether it's more vacation or working from home two days a week or something else now just quickly here i want to acknowledge something else i've heard women say about the whole idea of going back and forth over a new salary what about the women who say look companies should just pay everyone fairly i shouldn't have to negotiate if only life were like that that's, I mean, that's my simple response to that. You know, in an ideal world, life would be like that. I mean, interestingly, we're doing a research project um, with a company who are removing salary negotiations. Uh, I, I can't n- mention the name of the business yet uh, until the research is completed, but they're exploring whether or not removing traditional salary negotiation processes will actually help in creating a flat structure and, and make people feel empowered. And we're working with them to see if that is actually the case or whether actually removing salary negotiations disempowers people people start to feel resentful like they're not valued like they're not able to put forward their case for why they are worth what they're worth um yeah so very interesting you know um but i think you know yeah in an ideal world fairness would prevail and uh, you know we would all be given what we deserve my point is and i talk about this in the book and on every session i ever run that fairness is actually subjective of course and what's fair to the business owner or to the hiring manager with finite resources is often very different to the employee who has certain expectations and a lifestyle they want to maintain you know fairness isn't universal we like to think it is but you know on a very simple level um, often what's fair to a buyer is not fair to a seller So for everyone who is going to negotiate, something to bear in mind about your choice of words. Again, this is a trap I know I've fallen into. You also talk about the language that we use when we negotiate and and sticking to clear, non-waffly language. You say there can be a tendency to use words when we're nervous, like, I was thinking about something in the region of X. I'm really glad you brought this up because also earlier in this recording, I actually caught myself using some of this language. And actually, I would like people to take from that that the lesson is, is never get complacent. You know, because this isn't a negotiation, I haven't planned for it. So I've allowed that language to slip into my vocabulary. So I said earlier on, I'm looking for 20. You shouldn't say that. You should say my price is. So I always say that, you know, when you're negotiating for something that's important to you, don't say you're looking for or hoping for, because then all they hear is, you don't expect to get it. So what do you say I'd like or I want? My proposal is. You know, so there's a difference between me saying I'm looking for around about 20,000 than me saying my proposal is 20,000 and here's why. Same message, different impact, you know, completely different method of delivery. So it's about 
being clear about what you're asking for. You know, I also use the example of a roundabout somewhere in the region of, you know, if you're asking for somewhere in the region of 20,000, they're going to hear 15,000. People hear what they want to hear. We look for what we want to, to look for. You know, I talk about biases in negotiation. I was talking about it the other night. You know, we bring all these biases to the negotiation table um, and uh, confirmation biases is, is, is a really important one. But so is, you know... <laughs> You ask for around about 20,000, they don't hear 20,000. They hear the lower end of that, which is why we also say don't use a range. You know, if you say I'm looking for, you know, 15 to 20,000, they hear 15,000. If that's what it works in their interest to hear, they hear 15. And then you've got a hell of a job to get them up to 20. I mean, interestingly, there is research that suggests that sometimes ranges can be helpful, but as a general rule, I think you need to be clear. You need to be concise. You need to be specific. You need to own that conversation. And it's not about demanding it. You know, it's not about going, I need 20,000 and I'm refusing to budge. It's about saying, for the following reasons, my proposal is 20,000. Of course, the clever negotiator will have built in wriggle room to that. They will be opening ambitiously but credibly so that they can then actually drop down a little bit, but they're actually only then dropping down to what they wanted anyway. Towards the end of our conversation, we talked a bit about books we'd read on negotiation. One of the most famous of recent years, and it really got people talking about the idea that women negotiate less than men and that that hurts us long term, is Women Don't Ask. You mentioned Women Don't Ask, which I actually haven't read that one, but I'm a big fan of Ask For It, uh, Linda Babcock and Sarah Lash have a second book, which is, which is all about the way women are perceived when they negotiate and how to get around that. And they would say, you know, it may sound icky but women probably do have to smile more we have to play up the pleasant in these interactions do you sort of bulk at that or do you agree it's difficult because I, I in the same way I wouldn't tell women to kind of play up to stereotypes of how men negotiate or we think men negotiate because not all men are aggressive when they negotiate by any stretch um, I also feel a little bit uncomfortable about kind of saying ladies behave in that kind of way to get what you want. I think we all have to be the best versions of, of what we can be of ourselves. And, and actually, the same is true for anyone, not just women. You know, some people that you negotiate with are going to respond better to smiles and questions and talking about where they've been on holiday or, you know, it's about understanding people. And this is really the, the real focus of everything I teach. Negotiate Association is about people, and people are all different. Thank you so much for doing this. Is there any anything you'd like to say that you haven't said that you think is particularly important for women to bear in mind that you want them to go away with? I'd very quickly like to share, I mean, I, I've said to you at the start that I'm a big one for demystifying and making things simple, and I'd li- really like listeners to leave with a, a toolkit. So just very quickly, the four steps of brilliant salary negotiation are as follows. Uh, I call it the REAP approach because you reap what you sow in relation to salary negotiation. So the first part um, is R, which is research. Do your research, know the marketplace, know your worth, know what other people in similar roles are paid. Um, See the world through their eyes. What does your employer want to achieve? Are they looking to boost their market share? Are they looking to increase more sales? Understand what they want and start to think about things from their perspective. Then you need to establish. So the E is establish. Establish boundaries. What will you accept? What won't you accept? Establish what else matters to you. So is it vacation? Is it access to different projects? Is it time abroad? And establish what you're going to start by asking for and what your walkaway point is going to be. Then it's the ask. 
So this is about being aware of anchoring. Think about the power of anchoring. And if you can't go first, just make sure that you stick to your plan, that you ask for what you planned to ask for. It's also about making sure you're not the person who goes into a negotiation with your opening proposal, a rough idea of where you want to get to and no plan as to how to bridge that gap. Plan multiple proposals in advance. Don't just wait for them to respond and then come up with something. Instead, have all your different requests planned out, every step you might make mapped out. And then the P is persevere. How are you going to respond if they say no? What questions are you going to ask? Learn how to become more resilient. Use breathing, use rehearsal, use friends and family to practice with, but persevere. You might get a no straight away, but the best negotiators will go back. Try and keep that conversation going. I used the example earlier on. Let's say you say, do you know what, Natalie, I can't pay you that. You don't yet have the experience. My response shouldn't be, oh, okay, thanks anyway. Said my response should be, thank you for that. Um, So I'm very ambitious and I do want to access that level of salary. So I would be really grateful for you to outline, if not now, in writing after this meeting, the steps I need to take within a defined period to be able to get that. And if we can't talk about money now, I'd be really keen to discuss vacation days or whether or not I could maybe work on a project in a different part of the business to increase my exposure. Got all that? If not, I have your back. You can find a transcript of this whole conversation at thebroadexperience.com. Just head over to the page for this episode. Thanks so much to Natalie Reynolds for meeting me in London last month. She is CEO of negotiation consulting firm Advantage Spring and the author of the book, We Have a Deal. Next time, after some early disappointments, a reluctant negotiator presses ahead. There was just, you know, a little bit of back and forth. And in the end, I got very close to what I ultimately asked for. Look out for that episode soon. And let me know what you think about this one in the meantime. I'm Ashley Miltite. Thanks for listening. See you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.